Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello, how are you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? Yes, it is Thursday. It's the Two Shot Podcast. And just before we uh, crack on, uh, apologies. Uh, I'm recording this quite early in the morning. He's still um, having a lie-in. But I tell you who's not having a lie-in. It's the workmen who are hard at it uh, near my house. So if there's any noise in this intro, then then it's just the workman doing the job. Um, now, before we get into this week's episode, it's a fantastic episode, by the way, with Seamus O'Reilly, and we'll get into that in a second. I need to scroll back a few days to uh, Sunday. Now, if you're in the UK, you'll be well aware of uh, the Observer newspaper on a Sunday. Um, and I picked up the Sunday papers quite late on Sunday because I was working, and uh, I'm flicking through the Observer never a feature about independent podcasts and a big shout out to uh, journalist Miranda Sawyer who compiled a list of what she thinks 20 of the best independent podcast and the two-shot podcast was in that 20. I'm always so thrilled and actually you know what quite moved after all these years that was still getting recognized uh, by journalists such as Miranda. So a massive shout-out to Miranda and a shout-out to The Observer for including the Two Shot podcast in that list. And if you haven't looked at that list, then do, because there is a fair few that I love on there. Um, so do check out. We put it on the full list. We put on the socials. So uh, dive in to one of those 20 and support independent podcasting. Now... Speaking of The Observer, every week, Seamus O'Reilly writes a column about his son and him and being a dad, and it's always very funny. Even this week, which we do touch on in this episode, uh, his family got quite ill, and it sounded horrendous, but as he always does, uh, he put his spin on it and... It's very, very funny. And I've been a fan of his column for a fair few years and his social media is always a delight. So when he told me that he was writing his first book, I suggested that he come on and we talk about it, but not before I read the book. And I did. Now, with a title such as, and this is the title of the book, did you hear Matt? I'm not going to do the accent. That would upset and offend many, many people. Seamus' book is called Did You Hear Mammy Died? Now, you would think with a title such as that, 
It could be a few hundred pages of grief porn and sentimental words and memories. And it, it, it isn't that at all. I mean, it is beautifully moving, I have to say, but it is laugh-out-loud funny. The characters in his extremely large family, and we do talk a lot about Daddy O'Reilly, who I think... I know there's a few of you that are reading this, or maybe you've finished this by the time um, you listen to this. I'm sure you'll you'll have fallen in love with uh, Seamus's dad, um, as many, many people will when they read this book. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not going to get into it because we talk about this in the episode and it's really good. It was a joy to have him on. Um, he's very witty, great company, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. So shall we? Okay. This is the Two Shot Podcast with the brilliant Seamus O'Reilly. Enjoy and I'll see you at the end. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. How is Hackney? Because I was I was in a park in Bristol on Sunday, blazing hot sunshine, and as ever, I read your column on Sunday, and there's been a lot of illness in the household. Is everybody well? Because you what 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 you always do is you made something sound so horrendous, but then I obviously found myself laughing at the predicaments that you were in, even though I shouldn't have been because it sounded fucking horrendous. <laughs> Oh, it was awful. We had norovirus last week and it's just, especially since there's like obviously a, a new player in town in terms of uh, viruses and this plucky little norovirus has been forgotten about. I don't think I'd had a dose oh, five or six years and man, it is no fun. And as I mentioned in the piece, I made the incredibly genius decision to try and get some cowpaw into my son who's three via yogurt, which just resulted in bright pink <laughs> puke everywhere <laughs> i mean i and i was completely in denial by the way i was wearing like two face masks and like i, I was and then i looked it up and it's like there's something like two billion particles in one puke and one of them just like two, one two or three of them have to get inside you and then you've got it so i don't know i thought that you know singing the mr potato song and just practicing a bit of face mask hygiene would work but no norovirus doesn't play like that uh so no we got through it and perhaps the sort of really horrible thing is whenever stuff like that happens to me now i kind of do think oh this will be good for the column (laughs) 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 which is terrible i shouldn't admit that but uh because he's only three i've been writing it now i I, I filed my 157th weekly column about my son Mm. he doesn't do that much uh, and I'm always I'm always delighted when people say they read the column because I always think if you've got kids, then who the fuck is this guy to tell you anything? Because <laughs> I don't know anything. Um, and then if you don't have kids, and I just even less, I don't understand why you're reading it. But, no, but uh, I think clearly that's what well that's what all we're doing as parents. No, not I, I mean I always feel 
slightly embarrassed when you see like mums and dads who think they know what they're doing, but deep inside they don't know anything. They're as clueless as we are. Everybody, you can read every book under the sun, but uh, it's there's nothing that's going on. And especially when they start school, I mean, you're just dropping them into a horrible petri dish of bacteria and there's just <laughs> illness spreading around the house all the time. If one person's getting it, we're all going down yeah, and it, that's it. It's like uh, lice and nits when you were a kid as well. It was like that sense that you, your kid or, or in my case, just me, you wouldn't get it. And just it's everyone. The kids are, let's face it, they're disgusting. I mean, they, they don't have any sort of boundaries. So you know, anytime uh, I get into those situations, like the tendency would obviously, because my dad had 11 kids, you know, call him up and ask for advice. But his advice is almost infuriatingly simple. It's just, you'll work it out. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you want him to come in with something really specific, but he's like, no, it was different for every single one of you. You know, this one read if you order them to, this one read just because, you know, they found that one book that they liked. Someone didn't walk till they were three. Someone didn't talk till they were two. It's complete crapshoot. Um, and I think that's the, the sort of soft power that comes from rolling the dice so many times and realizing that there's actually, if there was one set rule, then, you know, it would be a lot. It'd be a lot easier gig, <laughs> and it, it would. And it, but it would be incredibly boring as well because I mean that everybody's the same, and we all know that every child is completely different. But I think that advice from your dad is you'll work it out is probably the best advice because we will work it out because every case is completely different. Yeah, his other one is uh, you know children bounce. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think if if my dad is one thing that he would say, so he doesn't. Uh, he's very, uh, he's very, he loves us a lot and he's very protective. And certainly with the grandkids, he's probably a little bit more kind of uh, cautious or whatever. But like, he doesn't like the idea of molly coddling, molly coddling from a, in a physical sense. So he definitely believes you should, you know, he's very emotional and he's somebody who talks a lot about loving and uh, having emotional and sort of spiritual strength in kids. But like, Letting a kid get in bumps and bruises and, you know, sitting them out there in the world to eat mud pies. That was absolutely his, his approach. It was, um, so mm. he's, he has no patience really for us when we're, you know, crying and lacking and being annoyed that someone's got a little cut on their knees. Like, geez, you all had them. I had to go to A&E so many times. You just get through it. You get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we are going to get on to your dad later on, <laughs> I feel. I mean, I'm, and I'm sure I'm not the first one to say, having read the book, I've completely fallen <laughs> in love with your dad. I mean, the man is an absolute legend. And apart from the fact that there's a, one of my favourite chapters in the book um, involves him having a standoff about two, two for three price on toilet rolls, which in itself should be the opening of your dad's sitcom, but that's going to be, that's another, that's another podcast. Um, how was it when you, or do, or do you think it was inevitable that you were going to write something about your family and how, how were they going to take it? Do you think? Uh, well, whether it was inevitable or not, I mean, I'd say almost certainly, I think the situation, the circumstances of my childhood were so outsized that they're basically, it's all we've ever talked about as a family together. It's a thing that's constantly brought up by friends uh, even at like dinner parties, people will literally say, hey, my mate Seamus, he's got 10 brothers and sisters. You know, so it's kind of a, something that we've talked about a lot. So it was probably 
inevitable that it was going to be something that I wrote about at length. The reason I asked that, uh, because it is, the, the whole book is very personal and, you know, everybody in it is, it's your family. And we have to say that you are one of 11 children. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very big family, um, which has a very big story. So in terms of it being a, a noteworthy tale, like that's, that's pretty unavoidable. Like 11, I'm one of 11. Mm. We grew up on the border of Derry and Donegal. My mum died when I was five. So my dad, uh, the aforementioned Joe O'Reilly, he brought us all up. Uh, 11 kids between the ages of two and 17 on a single wage, which is something I never gave any appreciation to when I was growing up because obviously children mm. are incredibly ungrateful and don't understand that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah. also just the emotional turmoil of that for him did logistical just getting us out of bed in the morning yeah i mean it was pretty it was pretty late on that i realized just how how difficult it must have been for him i mean especially since we knew it was difficult we knew the fact that he's brought up you know 11 kids but that it was on a single wage was something that it took me quite a while to <laughs> acknowledge um and as i was writing the book now that i've actually had a yeah, kid myself yeah. you know and every day i think i deserve a fucking knighthood um you know I, i'm like how the hell did he do this i mean because we've been telling this story amongst people and amongst ourselves for for years and it's always just tossed off as this kind of oh it's a funny story you know we come from a big family and oh there's always a big queue for the toilets and all this kind of stuff and you know there are loads of very uh mundane funny things about that but then just imagining how the hell did he get us out of bed in the morning like get us into school um so all those things I was picking through and to some extent I was experiencing for the first time when you're writing a book, you know, of a, of a certain length to try and cover a, a large period of time, you end up digging into things which you've said and you've known uh, and you've internalized for your entire life, but have never really actually properly grappled with them. Um, and in some cases that was really emotional stuff and trauma and everything else. But in some cases it was just like, but wait, my dad had six teenage daughters at once when he was 50 years old. Like, I can't imagine what that was like. And I was there, you know? So, uh, so that was, that was really useful. And, you know, my dad kind of got used to me ringing him up and asking him incredibly um, irrelevant questions out of nowhere. You know, did you build bookshelves in every room? Uh, or like I'd ring him up one day and I'd ask him about every dog we had or all the priests that we knew. Um, and he likes to talk usually, but if he feels like it's for some uh, devious purpose, like writing a tell-all book, he can sometimes clam up. So I'd have to work, uh, I'd have to work around him. Um, but like my awareness of what he went through and just how he was able to keep the lights on, it's... That exploded while I was writing this book. And I think that's what's come across, I think, from the vast majority of the reactions. Um, I mean, Marion Keyes just professed her her giant falling in love with him the other day, which he's very pleased with, by the way. So he's hoping I'm going to set up a, a discreet rendezvous and uh, we can see if if they get on. Well, I think me and Marion will be having, having to have a wrestle for going out <laughs> for a drink with your dad, to be honest, because I'm on the first plane over. Um, it's, it, you, you know, you touched on it there, you know, you're talking to your dad and asking him loads and loads of possibly mundane questions and getting things out of him. And early on in the book, you do speak about memory and memories. And because you were so young, did you find yourself not only speaking to your dad but all your brothers and sisters and people who are around at that time just sort of snatching memories or 
getting the stories that you needed to start off the book? Oh, I was, I was thieving. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I was like a, one of those probe droids in Star Wars, you know, just going search and destroy. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was asking everyone loads of incredibly specific stuff that was you know, quite obvious. I was asking them about my mother's wake, uh, which I was too young to really remember very much of. Mm. Um, you know, the stuff from my you know early childhood, which obviously because I was so young when the book starts, you know, I was just three weeks shy of my sixth birthday. There's loads of stuff about it that I don't remember um for example the title of the book did you hear mommy died is based on something i said um which is not necessarily the most uh it's not a proudest thing uh, i've ever had it attributed to me but i decided it would be a good way to start the book um basically at the wake my uh mum has obviously been waiting in our house and there's hundreds of people coming back and forth uh our family's so big obviously that there's the big ones the the three oldest there's the middle ones the four middle ones and then there's the wee ones it was me and my uh, three siblings at the younger end of the pack yeah and so we wee ones we were we were just too young and thick basically to be trusted to go around and sort of like talk to people because we were completely oblivious. Of course. You know, it's, uh, we didn't know what was going on and we were excited. There was loads of people in our house and we knew that Mammy was dead in words, but we didn't really know what that meant. So we were kind of held with an iron grip. So we were passed around from knee to knee. We were kept away and we were fed and watered and, you know, cuddled. And uh, my little brother, Connell, who was two, I don't think his feet touched the floor for about two weeks. Um, but at some point I somehow got loose. No one was looking at me and I was found at the front door of our house waiting for every ding dong. And as people would open the door, you know, themselves distraught to come and see their friend who died. And it's me, five-year-old ginger me with my hand outstretched, a big smile on my face saying, did you hear mommy died? Because obviously I, I just thought it was the news of the day. You yeah, know? I thought of course. It was, it was like, it's like the football scores or, you know, it's like, oh, we, I've got a new toy. It was, it was literally that gauche. Um, so obviously that's, because it happened so young, I don't have really too much pain or embarrassment associated no. with it. It's more a funny story that we tell in our family. But I'd noticed over years, I would tell, we would tell this story, you know, as we just knocked down a, a good few bottles of wine at family get togethers and stuff. And it would always be rolled out and everyone would be, you know, tears in their face laughing. But if I ever tried to tell people in outside the family, they didn't know if they were allowed to laugh. They, it's, it's a tough one, you know, cause it's, it's so, um, it's so close to the bone, you know, when you're talking about something, which is, I mean, if you put a camera on that moment, you know, it wouldn't be funny, you know? So how do you get that across in the telling? So that was an early challenge. I thought, I want this book to be funny, even in the sad parts. Oh, but and there was, there was no phrase I thought that summed that up more than, did you hear mammy died? Yeah. You know, the obliviousness, the sadness, but also it, it is bleakly absurd and hilarious. But you do that so beautifully. Um, like, cause if, I just say I didn't know you. I didn't know you. I didn't know your work. I didn't know the background of the book. And someone handed me this book and said, "Oh, you should give this read." And I would read the front title, and it says, "Did you hear, Mummy died?" I would think, "Well, I don't know if I need 
anything, any more sadness in my life after the past 18 months. And if it's someone who's writing about their grief or it's just an outpouring of over-sentimental stuff, I don't really want it. But it's completely not that. And I'll go back to one of my favourite chapters when you're in the supermarket. And, it, you know, that chapter is ostensibly, you know, it's all about your dad and the building of his character. And that's where we kind of, I certainly first fell in love with him there. And I found myself laughing out loud. But then at the end of that chapter, I was really choked up because it was so beautiful. And it really ended that chapter. And it was in such a moving, unsentimental way. And I think that runs throughout the whole of the book, certainly what we were talking then about that first chapter in the wake. It, it, yes, it's moving, but it isn't throwing sentimental notions down the back of your throat all the time and, and willing you to cry. But it is moving at times, but it is hilariously funny. So that was, that a, that, that, that was some tone that you wanted throughout the book, Seamus. Oh, absolutely. And also, I think... I mean, there's something I've been saying quite a lot uh, to people as I've been, you know, talking about the book and explaining uh, my reasons for writing it the mm. way I did is, well, first of all, if you've been to an Irish wake or if you've experienced um, that type of celebration of someone's life, even in a case like this where it was objectively tragic, my mum was 43, she was beloved, she was a complete saint, mm. she was just just one of those people that everybody loved. She was, she was a lady, to quote, she, towards the end yes. of your book, a lady. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as I say, people, completely random people would stop me in the street all, all the time growing up and just spot my resemblance to her or maybe one of my older siblings who they did recognise and they would grab me and they'd say, you don't know me, but your mother did such and such a kindness to me or your mother helped me through a X, Y, Z. You know, that was the sort of person she was. So it's not even like the sort of thing where, you know, an 80-year-old with a great life behind him and everyone arrives and sure, people are having a drink and they're having a laugh and they're telling old stories. So it's not that kind of a funeral or a wake. But even still, within that environment of the Irish wake, there'll still be singing. There will still be people catching up. There will still be people finding those little pockets of joy in the sadness. And mm. as I've been saying quite a lot recently, that kind of approach, um, which I think is very prevalent within Irish culture and particularly in the, the wake tradition, finding joy in those moments and finding the humor in those moments isn't a sort of escape from grief, which itself could be a good thing. It's actually an acceleration of the process of getting through grief. It's, it's, it's not running away from the problem. It's, it's a way of tackling the problem. Yeah. And I think that that's true of anyone. If you've ever had a breakup, you know, if you've ever, you know, completely, if you've been sacked from your job and that night you're in the pub with your mates and you're able to laugh about it, you know, the second that you can laugh through things, not necessarily at the thing, but through the thing. Mm. And that's the tone I wanted to get for in the book, but that also comes with a big responsibility because you, the last thing I wanted to do was write a book that was just uh, glib or didn't go through the tough stuff so as you mentioned some of the chapters they 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 go into the deep stuff as absolutely, well absolutely uh, yeah <laughs> so it's a matter of balancing that because the misbalance of that or the imbalance of that would have been the thing that i was most scared of so that was the tone i was going for the whole time absolutely well you capture it beautifully and i'm, I'm not just saying that i've I, I really really enjoyed it and did find myself laughing out loud and really choked up but yeah i did fall in love with many characters but yeah your dad is number one, as I'm sure he will be for a lot of people. Um, let's talk about writing, because I know younger about your love of dinosaurs, which my son 
will challenge you on any day of the week. Um, and your brief sort of flirtation of wanting to be a farmer. So when did the possibility of writing for a living rear its head? Ooh, in terms of writing for a living, um, surprisingly late on. I mean, I was that person who always did the essay writing competitions and the poetry and story competitions in school and loved them. I uh, did loads of, I, I was part of the sort of little satire magazine in Derry or sort of online thing called Pure Derry at its very early form. Um, I was a co-editor of that when I was like 16 or 17. Um, and that kind of blew up into this massive thing. Um, and then by the time I got to college, I was doing literature and history. So I was very involved in you know, in, in writing and in thinking and reading and everything else. Where were you but, at, where were you at college, Seamus? I was in college in Trinity in Dublin. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but the idea of writing for a living then was kind of science fiction. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound as if we were, you know, kind of dragged up on a earth floor, you know, in some sort of hovel, you know, we were, we never wanted for anything. My dad did an amazing job. Uh, by that, I mean, he did an amazing job of bringing us up. He worked as a kind of mid-level civil servant <laughs> for the water service in Northern Ireland. So it wasn't particularly glitzy, but we never felt like poor or anything. But when I got down to Dublin, I was like, oh, wow, okay. There are, there's such a thing in Ireland as, as rich people. And <laughs> they were the kind of people that I saw who were going off and doing sort of like very creative pursuits, whereas I was always having to work you know, part-time jobs and mm. kind of work, work through college. Uh, so the idea of writing or doing that sort of intern thing or going to newspapers and working, covering cake sales for, you know, months or even years before you get to be on the desk and then you're, that wasn't really something that was doable. Um, there was also the fact that when I got to Dublin, I was much more interested in music and uh, becoming uh, inebriated and just having all that good stuff. So in terms of actually getting something published in the proper press, it was probably getting towards my thirties when right. I was spotted by someone from the Irish times. Cause I was putting up very stupid Facebook posts and doing silly stuff on Twitter. And they said, Hey, uh, can we use some of this? And I said, yes, but I want to write a column for you. What's something that no one else wants to do? And so they got me to do something and then another thing and then another thing. And then I had a column in the Irish times, I think about a year later, um, just purely from brass neck and probably sheer desperation. I mean, I was, I was kind of, uh, I was working dead end jobs in London and I was so desperate for a creative outlet that I was constantly doing very silly things on Twitter. So I was writing a lot of, uh, fake letters to rush our crush in the Metro. Um, I think I did got about 26 of them published and like, I still really like all them. I was that one? Was that one of your first ones? Because I think that's where we sort of I started first following you around that time when yeah, when they absolutely. were getting published, and and it was before that was before Nutella, wasn't it? That was before Nutella uh, and and mid Nutella. So it was in the same bloody job as well. Like I was, <laughs> I can look back. I can look back at those, and I was clearly just. You know, when you can look back at something with enough distance and you say, that is a guy who just needed a creative outlet, but yeah. was lying to himself about it. Because I outwardly felt perfectly happy in my life. I, you know, was doing a job I didn't really care very much about. Like, I, you know, probably a very, very high percentage of people in this world. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a, uh, I'm a, 
long suffering stunted novelist or uh i'm i should be writing features for the guardian or something i just felt like oh if, you know i put this out and people will like it you know but then i look back and the amount of effort that i was going to the amount of <laughs> the amount of sheer like howls into the void i mean the whole point of a rush hour crush is that i was kind of sending up was that these were such you know people really putting themselves out there and desperately trying to score a date with some random person they saw same as for uh, those that that, that that haven't read the metro or certainly don't remember that little section could you just explain to the listeners what it was and also what you did oh with with extreme delight so <laughs> when i when i first moved to london in 2011 i was just captivated by the rush hour cross section of the metro so in other countries it's kind of called misconnections and there's kind of an example of it in, in a lot of places but basically it is a little part of the paper where it's people saying i saw you on the number 15 bus you were wearing a cream coat and you had the most beautiful smile would you like to get a coffee sometime so that's the basic thing so you've probably seen that kind of thing you've heard that kind of thing before the one in the metro was different because it's just such a big city obviously london and the metro is so widely read i think it sells four million copies and each copy is supposedly read by you know multiple people because people leave them on the train and everything mm. so partly i think people are emboldened by the fact that so many people read it that maybe if i just describe the person well enough that you know that uh, that hottie on the 15 <laughs> bus will get back to me but the problem is, obviously, with so many people, there's also some really, really strange ones. Like, I remember reading one where a guy was like, uh, uh, I'd like to apologize to the brunette on the underground uh, to whom I wrote my number on a on a banknote uh, to give to her. You completely misconstrued it and thought that I was offering you pay for sex. And, and and so I was like, okay, well, if that can get in, I mean, I sincerely hope that it is it's fake because otherwise I was like, but if that can get in, can I get one in? So I was, as much as I am, you know, I'm kind of mocking these people and kind of, but my own pursuit of, you know, getting 4 million people to read something that I wrote was exactly the same thing. It was a sort of a desperation, yeah, uh, untapped talent, the raw talent <laughs> that I had. So I sent in the first one, which was like to the guy who got on a bank dressed as Mr. Chips from Catchphrase. Your cheeky smile reminds me of popular sayings. Fancy a drink sometime. And it was signed, girl in bring back hanging t-shirt. So, <laughs> so I, I, I wanted them to be as absurd as possible for my first one because I wanted to see if it could get in. It was like a, it was like a trial balloon, you know? And it got in. Oh so, my God. But I mean, like what does someone who got on dress as Mr. Chips look like? What is that? How did that, how could that possibly work? In what sense did his cheeky smile <laughs> remind me of popular sayings? <laughs> and why would, even if you did wear a bring back hanging t-shirt, why would you be so blasé about disclosing this? Um, so anyway, that one got in and I felt a pure rush, uh, so it just, uh, I was horribly addicted. And yeah. like I, like I say, I was, I was exactly as desperate as all those other people. Only I had much more malevolent intentions. I was just desperate, just doing it for praise or for people to laugh. And of course it's now spun out into this other thing, which is I got so many of them in. Some of them have gone around. They're all unattributed. Obviously I used a different email for everyone. I used a different phone number for the ones I did on the phone. You know, I was using all my friends' phones in work. People would like gather me around because they were all bored as in the job as I was. And they're like, you're going to do another one anyway. So I would get, 
I would loads of them would just circulate. They've got a half life of their own. I mean, there's one I did about uh, uh, to the sexy Spanish senorita on the number thirty bus. I'd like to apologise. What I did was, you know, really insensitive to your country. Uh, I'd like to make it up for you to you with uh, over some tapas or paella or whatever. <laughs> and then it was signed, "Happy bearded man who used discarded burger cartons as castanets." So. <laughs> Obviously, because I'm signing these all off with an additional joke. Yeah. There's nothing there that suggests it's actually me, which is great in terms of me not getting fired from my job for mm. doing all these on work time. But it also means that they have, they're constantly coming back around and I'm constantly being tagged in them. So like there's a tweet, Twitter account that's just constantly posting these kinds of things all the time. And that one is sent around, I think probably every probably every two months it comes around again and gets like 50,000 things and I oh get tagged God. into it about a hundred times. <laughs> uh, so to some extent, be careful what you get famous for, but if you can leave your name out of it in those cases, it's probably for the best. Yeah, I think so. And then how did you up the ante with the Nutella? Because yeah, so, the, so again, this, for people who don't know this story, I mean, we'll probably need to put this out on, socials again although it does come back around as you say every so often um yeah so that was uh, a similar thing this is great it's like a retrospective of my greatest works <laughs> yeah. uh, that's what these podcasts uh, are all about same uh, as you oh, know <laughs> i do i do indeed though and i'm just so glad that it's not like my incredible hamlet at the royal vic it's you we're, know, we're, it's, get, we're gonna get to that don't worry <laughs> <laughs> um so yes i got uh I got the idea because I worked quite near Selfridges and I saw that someone in Australia had been uh, really angry and they'd been in the papers and said, I wasn't able to get a personalised Nutella jar for my dear daughter, Isis. And so you could kind of work out why that was the case. Yeah. They obviously have something built into the software they use at these kiosks. You walk into the shop, you say, my name is Albert. They say, here you go. And my name is Craig. My name is Seamus. And they'll give it to you and they'll whatever. But if you ask for ISIS or if you ask for 9-11 was an inside job or if you ask for any swear word or anything else, you don't get it. Mm. So because I'm almost catatonically mature, I decided... <laughs> Maybe, maybe I could play around, play around with this. So I decided, and it, it, it's it is stifling to remember just how puerile this is. But I'll, I'll go, I'll, I'll plow straight through. You. I decided I would get as many terms for shit as I could printed on these Nutella jars. So my favorite term for um, human waste uh, is a Dublin term, which is back dirt. Which is just so profoundly disgusting. <laughs> so awful. It's so it's so basic. Me back dirt. So um, I said back dirt, and so back dirt just wasn't didn't show up on their their algorithm. You know, it doesn't. It's, mm. it's you know, it's one word made up of two words, which are perfectly inoffensive. So I got back dirt, and then I put it up on Twitter, and it, it got a perfectly nice response. But I think I had like three and a half followers at that stage. So whatever. I was mainly showing it to my friends back in Dublin, particularly and friends in Derry and people in, you know, that I knew. And uh, coming back with a little presentation box. Anyway, so that ex accelerated till I got, I got arsemuck, I got gut broth, I got, <laughs> I, it's just horrible. So it got to the point where, I don't know how, but like two or three, by the time I'd done three of them and shared them on Twitter, again, to like my very meager followings, it had just been picked up to the point where I was getting called in by like radio stations 
uh, like I was Zorro, you know, uh, you know, this incredible, <laughs> intrepid countercultural protester, you know, doing the most inane, stupid thing just to make some friends laugh on a lunch break. Um, and they were, the Daily Mail did a big sort of, you know, bullet point yeah. scare story on me. I had people, if I walked into the shop, who were kind of following me around because I think they worked out that it was me. They knew that it was an Irish guy. Right. They'd seen my they'd seen my picture in the Daily Mail. So the last three I got, I had to get under extreme, uh, extreme surveillance. Um, <laughs> but I still got them. I still got them. Um, so I mean, I think I said at the time, whenever people ask me about it, it's like, uh, obviously, I do think this is is true, the true spirit of comic genius. I mean, that's uh, that's not even in question. <laughs> no, but. It was really, really worthwhile at the time because I cannot tell you how bored and depressed I was in that job. And just the idea of just having something that stupid, be it Nutella or the Rush Hour Crushes, mm. or just building up an incredibly stupid body of work, you know, was, yeah. it was enough really to kind of give me the sense that, well, you know, uh, maybe I am struggling with the restraint of putting num <laughs> putting numbers putting numbers into forms all day and, and being called into meetings if I wear socks that are slightly too too bright. You know, there's that oh, one of those kinds of workplaces. Okay. Oh, so I, I can look back at it now and I, I still I have make no excuses. I still it still does make me laugh, all that incredibly stupid stuff. Mm. But more than that, I see that whatever, twenty six year old me and I think, uh, yeah, you were just gasping to be given you know some room to spread your legs creatively so, yeah but also it was it was a release from the the just the drudgery and the mundane nature of that job you needed to do it there and then obviously yeah completely and also the fact that that's the sort of stuff that i was laughing at all the time when it was done by other people mm -hmm. so you know have a go i mean the format is obviously kind of irrelevant really you know some of the things that make me laugh the most in the world are incredibly crudely drawn memes or just single text tweets that just perfectly capture an idea um and i think you know if you can if you find something that makes you laugh no matter how bloody stupid it is you know jump after it because clearly i was drowning and it was a a pooey little life raft that i was holding <laughs> on to <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, it goes back to um, the wake in the, the first chapter of the book. On the face of it, it's it's awful and it's tragic and it's deeply sad. But also within that, there's comedy. So if you're in a job that you're depressed at, there needs to be a lightness, a touch. There needs to be comedy. So the two, there's a balance of the two things. Yeah, completely. And you can, you can mine both things at the same time. Mm. I think that was the thing I realized when I was writing and sometimes I'd overwrite, you know, so whenever I was first thinking about doing the book, I think I was very self-conscious. I mean, I'm one of those people who I'll read an amazing author, or amazing, you know, kind of comic mind or a really literary mind. And I'll be like, oh, I wish I could do that. And then I start kind of overthinking it and I go back to my own work and I'm like, oh, this isn't as funny as David Sedaris or this isn't as, you know, incredibly moving and painterly as say Sally Rooney or mm. whatever, just to use two random ex examples. But that's just a pointless and incredibly stupid way to approach it. So very quickly, I realized that the only way that I could really get 
these stories across in the way that I wanted to get them across was to try and replicate that feeling of being around our kitchen table at home where the tragic and the comedic are right beside each other. They weave in and out of each other. They can they can invade each other's sentences. They can pop in and out of existence from nowhere. You mm-hmm. know, you I will literally be having a conversation with my my brothers and my sisters uh, about something horribly horribly sad, and then five seconds later, with no exaggeration, five seconds later we will be pissing ourselves laughing, and it doesn't just work because you know it's it's it punctures the sort of moment or because you structure it in such a way that it kind of gives a release. It works because it's true to life and people recognize that from their lives. They recognize, I mean, I always think that way you mentioned earlier, sort of a sort of a more pull face version of the book, or if you picked up a book with the title, you might think, Oh, is this going to be, you know, very worthy. Mm. And there's a whole genre. I think that most people are aware of, of miserable Irish childhood books, a lot of which are taught to Irish children yeah. at school. Yeah. Um, and there, some of them are incredibly beautiful, wonderful books. Oh yeah. Just very, very worth reading. But I think I, and I presume you from what you just said might sometimes have the same reaction, which is you're reading it and you're like, was no one there cracking a joke? Like, was no one there? Did no one there have a, an odd way of dealing with things? Yeah. Did no one have some sort of strange, weird, you know, angle towards the universe that would be, that was A, true, that you can represent the fullness of human life, and B, that would maybe puncture some of the the, the sort of unanimity of feeling that you kind of get from some of these things. So I often find that whenever I read a book that has almost zero laughs in it, that it feels false. Um, yes. Even even when it's the most beautifully written book. You know, I mean, people always talk about things like Ulysses as being this big, turgid thing that you can barely get through. Um, and it's a difficult book, but it's really funny as well. You know, I mean, no one talks about that. No one talks about how funny it is. Angela's Ashes is always used as this exact, you know, example of like, oh, it's just misery porn and this and that. But it's really funny in parts. You know, it yeah, has it is. loads of, you know, incredibly bleak humor. And also just, big broad laughs i mean i think roddy doyle does that so beautifully um mm. you know where he he has all that stuff together even in the darkest moments there will be laughter and and vice versa I'm, so th- that's what i'm doing as i'm comparing myself to james joyce and <laughs> Roddy Doyle. but but i just mean as a format i think that was only the only way i was ever going to be able to do it and once i realized that i kind of let myself off the hook from trying to be uh you know ex- extremely highfalutin and trying to get all these you know these big literary illusions and kind of painterly senses because those come afterwards anyway you know if if you if you start with just your tone your style your your way of communicating to the world you can you find that, that stuff just creeps in anyway you know that stuff that you're stressing about putting in you know it's there but just get the tone and the mood, the atmosphere, mm. right first, I think. And was your approach different? Because obviously writing a weekly column is completely different to writing a novel, so, and certainly one like this that's so personal that you're you're gathering snatches of memories and making up this, this scrapbook of memories and then putting them down. Your approach to writing the column, as, as per your approach to writing the novel, was there any pitfalls? Did you find anything that was stored in you or was, you know, starting to become difficult? Um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely more difficult to, 
to structure things out so that the story wasn't just a bunch of things that happened. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think I do actually find column is a lot of ways is harder on a day-to-day basis because it has to be, it's so compacted. So my column is just under 600 words and it's, you know, it's, uh, it has to cover something which actually usually has to capture something which has happened that week. Um, and as I've said, my son doesn't do much that's particularly interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um, just, I, just you wait, just yeah, you wait. Exactly. So I have to, I have to really work hard sometimes to make things interesting, not, not to be repetitive. I mean, for example, we started potty training and it didn't work. And so the, about six weeks later we started again and I was like, Oh, I can't even write about this. I've used it up. Mm, <laughs> so, yeah. I, so I had to, I had to work a way to get it back in. But writing the book was different because I had to scan and search through so much material in my own brain and then also try and get loads of stuff from other people. Um, mm. and also try and try and over the course of a chapter, which could be seven or 8,000 words long, still keep the momentum going. So it's like, why, why is this one chapter? Why is this not in the next chapter? Why are you crossing timelines here when you could be, there's so many more options. And, you know, as any creative person, the more options you have, it's almost debilitating because, you know, if I turned in a book that was, you know, all serious, my publishers would be like, okay, right. We'll work with this. And if it was just a complete laugh, right. Just gags, gags, gags. If it went all the way up to my university days, which was an early plan, you know, they would have taken that as well. Like I had all these options in the end. I wrote what 260 pages about me between the ages of five and like 11. Mm. So, as arrogant as it is to write a memoir when you're 35 anyway, to write it about six years of your life is even worse. Um, but I find that shortening that, shortening that span was one of the things that made it easier to do because I was able to go a little bit more tunnel focus into, okay, well, what was it like going back to school that first day? I mean, that's one day and that was a yeah. chapter. The wake is one day and that was a chapter. And slowly but surely you realise you're talking about one day, but you're really talking about everything that came after. You're really talking about all the people that were there, you know, and if you're talking about the galaxy of individuals and the numerous things that happened, I mean, my dad is an entire book by himself, you know? So. Oh my God. <laughs> he so is. Your dad, your dad is the sitcom waiting to happen. I mean, <laughs> he's, <laughs> how was, who was the first person that you gave it to, to read? Ooh, the By the f- way, first person I gave it to, I, I mean, apart from yeah, say from your publishers, publishers yeah. First person was actually my friend, Mary, uh, who I, um, who I trust her, her, her kind of taste. And I kind of trusted her to come back with some constructive criticism. I mean, that was the other thing as well as I, I feel like I don't actually know enough in real life, uh, friends who are, who are writers, certainly not people who I would kind of have a sit down and tell me everything that's crap about this book that I just <laughs> wrote uh, way. Like I'm not close to them in that way. Um, so Mary was uh, someone who I, I did that. But in terms of the first people, really my wife, Kara, um, mm. and yeah, my brother and sister would get little bits here and there. And I would obviously sort of trial some of the stuff with my dad over the phone. Um, and, you know, my dad's, consistent uh, threat throughout this entire process has been that he's going to release his own 
book, which is going to correct all of the inaccuracies, the slanders and the libels. At one point about two months ago, before it was released, before he'd heard any of it, he said, and I'm sure it's going to be a tissue of lies, um, which is a phrase he likes to use, a tissue of lies. Um, so he's, he says that he's going to release his own following book. And I have suggested the title should be, uh, Did You Hear Shamey Lied? Um, Perfect. So te- I'm, I'm all in for this. Yeah. So, um, But in terms of getting a sense of how they would react to it. Like that was really something I was worried about and anxious about. And I did actually have the chance, which was incredibly lovely. Just about a month ago, I got the chance to go back to see my dad for the first time in a long time. Mm. Uh, Cause he's back in Derry and I sat down two or three nights in a row and read him a chapter here, a chapter there. And I got to feel it out and see what he felt. The reaction was just everything I could have hoped for in the sense that it was, you know, happy at some parts. He was sad in other parts. He yeah. gave me constant criticism and constant <laughs> corrections. He would, he would interject a very, you know, somber bit about like a f- summer holiday we took the year after Mammy died. And he'd say, no, actually we bought that caravan in uh, 1991. Um, so you've got the date wrong there. I was like, all right, daddy, um, can, can I get on with this passage about, you know, the trauma of bereavement, please? Um, so, which is exactly what I wanted, you know, I wanted to have that experience. But he, it was also just, it was a bit odd to do it in that way, because you know that when you go to a house party or something and someone gets out the guitar and you're like, oh God. And then they're like, this is one of my own songs. And you're like, oh God. God. And yeah. like, even if it's the best song in the world, it's like, where do you look? It's, it's too demanding of your attention. Mm. It's so indulgent. But I also knew it was pretty much the only way I could, I could be right with myself that he appreciated the work that, you know, the month before it was out, at least I would go into it knowing, you know, he didn't think it was a complete crock of shit. So yeah. yeah, that was, and also you, you'd get an immediate reaction because you're there reading it to him. So you, and you know, yeah, I mean, it was it was a pretty stilted reaction to begin with because, as I said, you know, it's so indulgent, and he's 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 anxious because he doesn't know if he's going to like it, but he also doesn't want to offend me, and also. You know, me and my dad's sense of humor is thankfully, you know, they're not identical. So there are things which I find incredibly funny, which he doesn't even understand why I would ever find them funny. There's a part in the book where I talk about a family friend, a priest who uh, I named Finbar Staples. Uh, (laughs) And this we'll call Father Staples, we'll call him. Uh, He broke into our house. Uh, He came to our house to see us. It was the days before mobile phones. And my dad knows every single priest in Ireland is the kind of setup you need for this story. So much so that we've been away to see my auntie Kathleen for the day. We come back to find the doors open. Uh, In fact, actually a window was open. He jimmied open a window, uh, managed to get inside. And seeing that we weren't there, Father Staples just decided, ah, sure, they'll be back soon. Sat down in front of the TV made himself a sandwich, had a beer or two. I think he had some olives. Um, the whole, <laughs> you know, like to me, that is at the very least, it's a remarkable story. My dad came in. The second part of the story is we came in and my dad immediately started apologizing that he, we hadn't been here. Then he apologized that there wasn't more food in the house as if every house in rural Ireland is just like a clerical bird feeder that you need to keep fully stocked with priestly provisions. So we 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 were dispatched then to the kitchen. We had to make, you know, we had to make, you know, some fruitcake and get some mm. teas and everything. And my dad just sat down with him as if he'd literally just walked in the door like a normal person. So to me, that is an example of the sort of madness of a lot of Ireland, but particularly my dad and particularly that time, 
So I read that bit of the story to my dad. And again, he was like, well, we knew him very well. I don't understand why we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't be happy to see him. So, Daddy, but he broke into the house. I'm not saying we had to call the police. I'm saying like, that's, that's at least noteworthy. That's a noteworthy story. I don't think there's anything noteworthy about it. He was very welcome. He's like, like, okay, well, I just don't think we're, you know, I don't think we face the universe at the same angle. But luckily when I read the stuff to him and when I was able to go through it bit by bit, he, he laughed and, most of the right places he mm. got emotional and you know and stuff and he i think was just delighted that it was something that he he enjoyed you know he enjoyed listening to it wasn't uh too hackneyed or too cheesy or too glib um i think the balance even if he doesn't particularly you know go toe to toe with every single uh, joke uh, or doesn't get many, some of the references uh, and, yeah. and ardently disputes many of the facts in the book. <laughs> I think he's happy enough that, you know, it works and that he likes it. And so he's been recommending it to everyone and he's been, you know, utterly delighted by all the professions of love that have come his way <laughs> from people. Oh, and, I'm sh- and I'm sure there'll be many, many more. And, you know, you do say yourself in in towards the end of one of the chapters that your dad would prefer if he didn't write about him and would just write an entire chapter on, is it on priests and horses? On dogs and priests. <laughs> dogs and, and priests. And then, and then, <laughs> please tell me what the following chapter is. The, the, you turn the page and the next chapter is called an entire chapter about dogs and priests. Yeah. And I'm, I, I, I can reveal, and is an exclusive uh, to your show, Craig, that that got such a big laugh from my dad that I it, it made everything worthwhile. Everything that has come yeah. so, since is, is is just a bonus because it worked. My t- that was a joke written for one person, you know, for an audience of one. And so when he he finally appreciated it when he, I was there uh, in front of him, I, that that made me feel a lot better. Um, yeah, because he uh, famously the whole time I was writing the book, he would be he started off being kind of like it was like getting blood from a stone. He wouldn't want to talk about anything to. Uh, uh, too involved, especially over the phone. He'd be like, "Why are you asking him about all this? Why are you?" Because he doesn't think too much of what he did was particularly remarkable. He's he's that kind of a guy. Oh yeah, but, yeah. You can you, that comes across in the book. But my God, he yeah, is. Yeah, of course. But to follow on to that, the addendum to that is then he started loosening up, and the range of things he thought would be appropriate for me to put in the book grew by the day. So I'd be getting phone calls from my dad. I'd never get phone calls from my dad. Like if I get a phone call from my dad, it means that like someone's died or (laughs) someone's pregnant like it's always it's a one-way street i ring him so i start getting calls from him and he's my little ideas agent now so he rings me up and he says you know uh courtney cox uh the actress was just in Derry last week that'd be something for the book it's like how would that go how would what what, all right i'm from Derry. one day courtney cox was there um he the dogs anything that his dog uh did um would would get in there Uh, he would hear incredibly culturally specific skits and sketches on Northern Irish radio. And he'd ring me up to relate them to me and say, I should put them in the book. I was like, daddy, even, even passing through all the copyright concerns that would pose, I simply do not think that there'd be any way of that being appropriate or relevant or interesting to my readers. But um, thanks. I'll, I'll take it under advisement. So I think he was, he he warmed up to it in the end, and he certainly warmed up to it now. He's he's happy with his newfound fame. Oh my god, Seamus, how has it been? Because we're just coming out of everything, and obviously, I don't want to talk about 
that because it's dull and it's boring. Um, how's it been promoting a book during this time? Because I know things are slowly starting to open, but surely there's been obstacles in your way. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't really mind it too much because, I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I watch a lot of sort of interviews with people and the, the remote ones are kind of, they're still okay. I mean, I do... I do kind of wish I got the chance to do some public stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't really miss having to go into TV or radio studio or anything, but there is something nice about speaking in front of people and being able to talk to them afterwards. Cause, um, cause I used to do that from the other end. I'd interview musicians and artists and writers and stuff uh, at festivals and stuff in, you know, my job for the Irish times and for, you know, different festivals. And there, there's always a lovely buzz and there's kind of a more of a, there's a sort of a human element to it. That's really, really nice. Uh, yeah, but in terms of you know, kind of doing long Zoom calls with, say, you know, TV people and radio people, it is a bit nerve wracking. It's there's something different about you know it being a blinking light on a screen, not being sure if you're being heard. I did one for an Irish TV channel the other night, and at the very last minute, um, this might shock you, considering the uh, uh, slight technical hiccups we had before we started recording. <laughs> but I had to run downstairs from my office, which is my son's bedroom, uh, down to the sitting room and had everything plugged out, had to plug everything back in, had to put the earphones on, but everything else. I looked at myself in the camera and I was sweating. I could see the individual beads of sweat. And just as I put the headphones back on, I heard the presenter of the TV show, a guy who I've been watching on Irish TV for you know 20 years, by the way. So yeah. I was already a little bit, uh, um, I hear him saying, and now our next guest. And I was like, oh, fuck. And so turns to me and I look like I've just jumped out of the sea. I'm sweating so much. I'm, I'm wearing a very nice jumper at least. So that's what everyone, you know, you know that you've maybe perhaps come off as slightly nervy and your people, your, your, your people close to you, your friends and family are like trying to make a nice thing. I think about 20 of them mentioned how nice my jumper was. <laughs> I was like, okay, it wasn't that nice a jumper. I, I kind of, I shot the bed. I know. Um, I had one on Irish radio as well, but so a week and a half ago and it was kind of the same thing. Just when you feel that imaginary little red light being on and I, mean, I have no problem talking to people and I, I speak in public a lot um, mm. and I especially like talking about myself, but I just, I froze and I was just scrabbling for words and I've listened, I warm up and then after about 30 seconds, I'm usually good. But like, it was really weird. I listened back to it and I was like, if I was in the studio, if I was actually there, if I was on stage, I don't think it would have happened as much. There is a sort of a separation or maybe if I'd been doing this without an entire year where I've just been speaking to less people, like yeah. I, I think that's made a difference. Uh, do you know when you bump into some, I bump into people at the playground and it's someone who I adore, but I haven't seen in about six months, you know, not necessarily a close friend, but just someone you've always liked, but you don't see them very much. Yeah. And I have no idea what to say to them. Yeah. Like, my small talk has gone, I mean, I'm, I'm actually really good at small talk. It's, it's one of those things I, I, I actually, yeah, I, I back myself uh, at small talk and it's like, I'm just pulling things from the far reaches of my brain to say, at one point I think, I was talking to someone for, and within about two minutes, she was telling me that her dad had got a new dog. Uh, you know, I was like, okay, well, Jesus, are we on that level of the conversational Falking totem pole? Out, yeah. yeah. It's like, wow, is that how boring we both are? But specifically me, I'm obviously bringing so little to the conversation. We're moving to five degrees of separation and species. Um, you know, it's like, oh, your, your cousin's getting married. Wow. That is, fuck. I had no idea. I would literally no idea. Why didn't you tell me sooner? Um, but I think that's across uh. the board. I think people are, I hear that from people that I interview as well because I still do that for the Irish Times quite a bit and you can see that there's a weird 
kind of institutionalization that's that's crept in where i think the sooner that we can safely and happily you know kind of go back to doing all that stuff in every branch of life it's it's very much separate to but also including things like this you know i i'd, I'd like to be at a wedding you know and oh god to, to turn, I, I don't want to i don't want to feel rusty anymore oh, i mean I feel rusty, i'm man. like i feel so I'm, rusty i'm so over as much as I'm loving talking to you today. I'm so over doing things remotely like this. It's like I want to be sat down. I would love you to be sat down around my din- dining room table now next to me on the chair and we're just looking at each other and we're just discussing things because there's, I'm just kind of missing that, that human aspect of, of a conversation. Yeah, and, and also just things that you used to hate. I used to hate being at weddings and having to talk to, I don't <laughs> yes. know, the, the, the father-in-law is telling you about his, his classic car. I would kill for that conversation now. Bring it, bring it yeah. on. Yeah, I mean, no, you're the, you know, the one of the groom's party is telling you about, you know, his latest cryptocurrency venture. And right now I'd be like, please show me your portfolio, <laughs> bring out your phone and show me, show me the lines going up and down. I have no idea what it means, but I'm just so happy to be in the world again. I want to look at that, that table map and go, right, I'm on number 12. Who's on number 12? Oh, that looks like the worst table <laughs> in the world to be on, but I'm on it. And do you know what? I'm really fucking grateful that I'm on the table. Or, or I, I mean, this is obviously to take it into the deeper levels of trauma, even when things come back, I heard something very upsetting, which is that they're not going to ever perhaps have finger food buffets and sort of hors d'oeuvres anymore because they're almost unprotectable. <laughs> now, yeah. Or like finger food hors d'oeuvres, like you know, wedding food, little, little nibbles. I think that might be my favorite food in the world. And I also really back myself at getting to those people, those waiters, before anybody else like i will park out, i will stalk those people like i am a lion in the savannah like it's it's absurd i will be mashing a mushroom blini into my mouth so quickly and then you know doing that thing where you kind of you're kind of walking behind you're kind of stalking them and then you appear and you're like oh oh, oh of course as if it just by happenstance uh you know occurred that your paths crossed when secretly you've been triangulating their position like with the beady eyes of a hawk <laughs> your mouth is still full from the last punnet of whatever you just put into yourself like that sort of stuff if they take that away from us if covid takes that away from us i i don't know that we can even call ourselves a society anymore i mean you wanted to end this conversation on the, the bleakest way possible. <laughs> We've talking about trauma and death, and now we're talking about the death of the buffet. Oh. Seamus, I, I, I'm deeply traumatised by this. Um, moving forward, Seamus, are there any plans for another book? Are we going to be branching out, or are we going to stick with what we know, We're talking about family? Because obviously there's more to go in, in this story. Yeah, I mean, I did stop it when I was 11. So that's that's fairly cheeky. Um, that's like, you know, clearly there, there's, there's clearly room, there's there's room a for more. I mean, to do another book of that type, uh, I'd absolutely love to do another one. Um, and I think there would be loads of stuff to talk about. But at the moment, uh, I can't say what it is exactly, but I'm working on a fiction thing that I'm quite excited about. So I'll have more information about that whenever I'm able to actually talk about it. But it'll be a sort of a a fiction thing, uh, which might not be, uh, text. It might be in another format. 
So, right, okay. So there that's okay. That, I don't want to, I'm not going to try and tease any more <laughs> out of you, but that sounds very exciting. Exactly. So that's been taking up uh, a lot of my time, my thoughts, and that's been great. Um, and also you still have that same thing that the grass is always greener. Like the whole time I was writing the book, I was like, oh, I wish I could just make up more stuff. I mean, because I have to make up some stuff in the book. I have to change some names and I have to exaggerate. And the way the book is written, it's it's clear that I'm, you know, at one point I describe a, a family friend who's a priest who's, you know, he really, he runs a cinema and he, uh, another thing, by the way, is uh, we decided the publisher said I should change his name. And I was like, okay, cool. So everyone in Derry is just going to have to think ha- really hard about what priest they knew that ran <laughs> the only cinema in town. Anyway, so I depict this guy under an assumed name, never to be decrypted, uh, you know, uh, being very, very upset whenever people bring confectionery into his cinema to the point where at one point he's literally holding a child by the ankles and shaking stuff out of him. So like... <laughs> My dad, obviously being a literal minded man, said he never would have done that. And I was like, well, of course, daddy, I'm saying he, like, I'm saying he's like Miss Trunchbull and Matilda. Like, clearly it's not literal. But the whole time I was writing it, I was like, it would be so much easier if I could just create some easy, nice, you know, things that actually, that, that happened, that were made up or just kind of finesse the edges. But yeah. I, But I can't because... I mean, even if I'm not beyond doing that, like it's going to be read by everyone in my family and you're also telling their stories. And now that I'm writing fiction, it's exactly the opposite. I'm like, I can't believe that I can just write anything and I don't just have to remember things. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so annoying that like you Are never, you- let, I, I've never gotten to a point where I've, I'm doing the thing that I thought I preferred and it's easy. Oh, it's easy street now. So. Are you are you, fi- are you finding it a, uh, a more freeing process with the fiction? I think f- for all that I've just said, yes, I think I am. Yeah. I, especially because it's a, it's a break from what I do anyway. Because to some extent, writing, writing sort of whimsical or funny stuff about my family and just about stuff that's going on in my own life is very much my bread and butter and I love doing it. Um, mm. So this is kind of, it's flexing a lot of muscles that I've been working on this whole time because I've always had little bits and things, ideas of things, you know, bits and bobs in the background. Um, and this is the first time I've been like, yeah, actually, I think it's ready to kind of go with that, with that, uh, with that idea and this idea. And it has been freeing um, for all of its white knuckling through all the choices you have to make. Cause you can make a yeah. choice in one part of it and then you realize, nope, that hasn't worked. You have to go all the way back and you can't just remember a different part of your life. <laughs> you have to make up all the new stuff <laughs> all over again. So, I mean, it's, it's a terrible idea. Nobody should do it. Um, we should all just work dead end jobs and write letters to rush our crush. I think you probably end up being more fulfilled, less nerve wracked if you keep your ambitions low and Seamus am I right in saying that the book's gone to number one in the Irish book charts yes uh yes I, I got that information yesterday I don't know what when this is going to be put out but uh let's say that it is so that it is forever and anytime anyone listens to this it's preserved in amber so that's extremely shocking and I'm completely dumbfounded um so I'm just just complete gobsmacked. I think most of the credit has to go to my mother-in-law, Marion, who I will shout out because uh, she's a saintly woman, but she's also, uh, she's become something of a, she's like Alec Baldwin in Glengarry Glen Ross when it comes to my book. She is, (laughs) she's stopping people in shops that she knows and telling them, there's this book you might want to buy, you know, if you know what's good for you kind of thing. So she's, she's probably (laughs) responsible for, I think probably 
half of all of the sales and she also comes from a big family and uh, my father-in-law comes from a big family as well. So between them, I think they've been really, really selling it. And so the support has come from them has been amazing and the support just from people reading it and actually getting it back to me, particularly in Ireland. They're a very, it's a very, very book-based culture. I think more so even than Mm. the UK, Um, you know, a book that kind of kicks off and people identify with, they will really rinse it to their friends. They'll really say to everyone, they know, you know, the amount of people coming forward and saying, you know, I really like this book and I like this bit particularly. So much more forthcoming, I think. Um, And it's, you know, that's something which I'm incredibly grateful for because for all I knew, people would just, you know, think oh that's a perfectly nice book see ya <laughs> well done um but it seems to have struck a chord at least with the people who've read it so far so hopefully uh more will and i'll still be number one 12 years from now when someone is listening to this <laughs> in the hard tundra wastes of whatever the world is 12 years well, from i'm now. sure everybody listening to this wherever they are in the world is going to grab a copy because i highly recommend it and i never get people on that i don't respect and i certainly don't never get people on this podcast to sort of sell their wares but um this book is fucking great and i laughed out loud and everybody will fall in love with daddy o'reilly no doubt seamus thank you so much for taking time and finally coming on even though we had some technical hitches that doesn't matter does it no not at all thank you so much for having me it's a real it's a real thrill oh mate thank you and honestly all the best with the book and i hope it stays at number one take care another episode is done what did i tell you great company is seamus um now if you don't follow him do follow him on twitter he is at shockproof beats on twitter and support him if you like the episode read the book and i guarantee you'll fall in love and it will make you laugh a lot and my god we need some laughter nowadays don't we so this could be a lovely summer read for you do go check it out Seamus O'Reilly's book did you hear Mammy died is available right now at all uh, reputable bookshops you know while we're talking about bookshops maybe support a nice local bookshop you don't need to get it online the sun's shining take a walk to an independent bookshop and pick up Seamus's book or any other book for that matter uh, but start with this one eh? look thank you so much for joining us and for downloading and uh for causing a fuss and telling your friends and supporting us on patreon if you do that thank you so so much we are uh two shot pod at patreon i think I'm terrible at things like this, aren't I? Um, anyway, if you Google Patreon, uh, the Two Shot Podcast, it should come up. Anything you can do to support the free podcasts that we've given you over these years. Um, somebody messaged us on Twitter a few days ago to say that they had completed Two Shot Podcast. They were bang up to date. That is um, that is support of the highest order. So thank you so much for everybody that does that. And even if you don't, you're working your way through the back catalogue. Um, we're going to have some more authors on very soon. Uh, we're going to have some chefs. Thank you for your messages last week about Justin Hawkins. He was an absolute delight. Um, yeah, lots of interesting people coming up. So... 
If you want to drop us a message, you can. We are on all the social of the medias at Two Shot Pod, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We are Two Shot Pod at Gmail. If you'd like to compose an email, we don't do letters anymore, do we? I mean, you could send us a letter. I don't know how we'd get it, but to us, but we could. No, don't do that. Just do an email, eh? Do an email at Two Shot Pod. Uh, no, Two Shot Pod at gmail.com. Over the years, I think I've got the email address right four or five times. That's terrible, isn't it? That's, I should be slightly more committed. Uh, I'm going to go now because it's a beautiful sunny day. As I say, uh, I'm recording this very early in the morning and me and him are off to Blackpool. So, until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson, he's been producer Griff and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care of yourself. We'll see you next week. Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on that's nice at caskers.com we make this experience easy caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code welcome 10 for ten dollars off your first purchase get ten dollars off your first purchase with code welcome 10 at caskers.com